Um, you can go ahead, Darren. We're um, it's Sunday. It's September 12, 2010. Uh, it also happens to be on the Hebrew calendar, the fourth of Tishri. So we're smack dab in the middle of Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish year 5771. Um, I'd like to teach on some of the feasts before they get here, so that when they come. Uh, you might have a deeper appreciation for them. And six days from today, next Saturday, is Yom Kippur. That uh, begins on the 10th of Tishri. So this morning, our message is really going to be about two things. Uh, we're going to title it Islam and Yom Kippur. This will be a message of stark contrast. Before I get going, though, I want to let you know we're going to add this book to the library here in the next few weeks. So if you are the reading kind, and I hope you are, uh, this would be a good one. It is written by Robert Spencer. It's the Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades. One of the things that I like about it, um, by the way, Politically Incorrect Guide can be abbreviated PIG. <laughs> I think he did that on purpose. Um, one of the things that I like about it is it does a great deal to dispel the common myths that are being pushed uh, upon the Western world, that Islam is a religion of peace that has been hijacked by a few fanatical men. Uh, there has never been a bigger lie that has been uh, perpetrated, except that a tax is temporary. Maybe that would be a bigger lie that's been perpetrated. Here's another book that will be added to the library. I read some years ago and recently got some things out of that I thought would be beneficial to you. It's by Mike Evans. It's called The Final Move Beyond Iraq. He wrote this in 2007, and uh, he tried to focus the world's attention on Iran, and nearly everything the man wrote is definitely coming to pass. Uh, I think it's a time when we need to understand the times that we're in. Uh, we need to understand them from a spiritual sense, and you may even for the first time in your life wake up and understand them from a political sense. You say, well, this is church. There are no politics in church. Everything in life is spiritual. And the way that men rule the world, and God uses men to rule the world, is through the kingdom of politics. Uh, there's another book that we'll be quoting from here in just a little while, but before we get there, I want to tell you that these seemingly unrelated subjects are going to have to do with the cultural contributions. The cultural contributions that the uh, nation of Israel has made that we're all benefiting from, the religion of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that has so shaped our lives and birthed the Messiah. And we will contrast that, at least in the beginning, with uh, Islam's contribution to the world. I guess maybe the place to start would be that old military song from the holes of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli were birthed out of one of America's very first conflicts with a Muslim nation. The shores of Tripoli refers to a time period where Muslim pirates, not any different than the ones that are in the news today, were Shanghaiing American sailors. And Thomas Jefferson, after reading this book called The Holy Koran, written by the devil himself, after reading it, decided that there was no way to negotiate with these people. They would understand only a superior show of force. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that. In the kingdom, I think we have other ways to deal with things than uh, brute force. Having said that, 
the third president of the United States had come to a conclusion that our political climate does not allow for. He said that Islam was evil. John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States, and I want to read you a quote from his diary. With preternatural energy of a fanatic and the fraudulent spirit of an imposter, Muhammad proclaimed himself a messenger from heaven and spread desolation and delusion over an extensive portion of the earth. Islam adapts all the rewards and sanctions of it as a religion to the gratification of sexual passion. He, being Muhammad, poisoned the sources of human felicity at the fountain by degrading the condition of the female sex and of the allowance of polygamy. And he declared un indistinguishable and exterminating war as part of his religion against all the rest of mankind. The essence of Muhammad's doctrine was violence and lust to exalt the brutal over the spiritual part of human nature. Can you imagine a political figure saying something like that today? But we live in a day where we call evil good and we turn around and call good evil, just like Isaiah said. If you don't know who Winston Churchill is, come see me after the service and I'll talk to you about him. But one of the quotes that Winston Churchill made on the subject of Islam, wherever the followers of the prophet rule or live, a degraded sensualism deprives this life of its grace and refinement the next of its dignity and sanctity. The fact that in Mohammedan law, every woman must belong to some man as absolute property, either as a child, a wife, or a concubine, must delay the final extinction of slavery until the faith of Islam has ceased to be a great power among men. He saw it as the biggest enslaving force upon the planet, but that's not how we hear it described. He goes on to say the influence of this religion paralyzes the social development of those who follow it. There is no stronger retrograde force in the world today. That's quite a statement for a man that stood up to the Nazis. There is no stronger retrograde force in the world, he said, than Islam. If you don't like political leaders, and I would understand why, here's one from John Wesley, respected man among almost all Protestants. Ever since the religion of Islam appeared in the world, the espousers of it have been as wolves and tigers to all other nations. Such was and is and is to this day the rage, the fury, the revenge of the destroyers of humankind. That's what Wesley said about it. But you may have grown up and heard that there's little difference between Islam and Judaism. One just calls Yahweh God and the other calls Allah God. I want to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. And here today, I'm not trying to teach you about Islam. I will teach you the truth about Judaism. But having said that, I think it is important to a nation of nearly illiterate people that every once in a while we raise a flag of awareness that actually shows what this book that they call the Holy Quran and the current president of the United States is fond of quoting from, especially when foreign nations like Egypt actually says. So here's a little segment of our message today that we will call Muhammad versus Jesus. Fair enough? Jesus says, Luke 6.35, But love your enemies and do good, and lend expect, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind 
to the ungrateful and the selfish. Muhammad in the Quran say, in the third surah, in the 28th verse, let not the believers take for friends, helpers, unbelievers, rather than believers. King Eric translation, do not be friends with anyone that is not Islamic. If any do that, in nothing will there be help from Allah, except by a way of precaution that ye may guard yourselves from them. Muhammad versus Jesus. Jesus said, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Muhammad said, whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. Oh, there's no difference there, right? All religions are basically the same. Are you kidding me? What a lie. Matthew 5 says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? But the Quran in the 48th surah and 29th verse says, Muhammad is Allah's apostle. Those who follow him are ruthless to unbelievers, but merciful to one another. This is not internet lore, friends. It's not the fake verse from the Quran that doesn't exist. Each of them can be found in this book that I put in the library for those of you that would choose to know the truth. Furthermore, in Matthew 5, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says you fools shall be liable to the hell of fire. Fires of hell. Crime 47.4 says this, Therefore, when you meet the unbelievers and fight, smite at their necks at length. When you have them thoroughly subdued, bind and bond firmly upon them. Therefore it is time for either generosity or ransom until the war lays down its burdens. But those who are slain in the way of Allah will never let their deeds be lost. You know that little phrase, smite at their necks? This is why they behead people around the world. The phrase, smite at their necks. Now, some have said, but Eric, you don't understand. I mean, I can point to passages in the book of Deuteronomy that also have harsh judgments. Yes, but let's point to the lives of our religious leaders. Is it the Southern Baptists that are blowing themselves up on planes? Hmm? Is it the Methodist prayer group that has gone out to conquer the world? No? See, we have a tradition from Judaism and uh in what we would call church history that teaches us to war against spiritual things. There is no such history or teaching in Islam. It might better be described as a political ideology of conquest rather than a religion that emphasizes spiritual life. And the reason I did Muhammad versus Jesus is if you want to best see what Islam is, look at its founder. If you best want to see what Christianity is, look at the founder. One is a man of peace, the other was a man of unending war. Smite at their necks. Oh, but I'm sure there's moderate Muslims. What would that mean? That would mean Muslims who don't take their holy book seriously. That's the only thing it could mean. Because I'm reading to you from their holy book. 
How about Muhammad versus Jesus with this one? Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. However, the Quran and only the second surah, the 191st verse, I mean right at the beginning of the ridiculous, incoherent babblings of a lunatic, says, and slay them wherever you find them and drive them out of the places whence they drove you out for persecution is worse than slaughter. In other words, don't allow yourself to live under the rule of anyone else. Kill them all. Second surah. Second surah. We're nearing an end because I want to give no more glory to this satanic book that I've allowed to be in here so that you can learn. Matthew 5 says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Quran in the 8th surah, 60th verse says this, Against them make ready your strength to the utmost of your power, including steeds of war to strike terror into the hearts of the enemies of Allah and your enemies and others beside whom you may not know but whom Allah doth know. Get ready to make war on everybody who is an enemy and even the ones that you don't know are yet an enemy because Allah knows they will be an enemy. Yeah, it's a religion of peace, right? Friends, you better learn from something besides the nightly news. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hear this because you hear it misquoted constantly. From the Quran, here is the ninth surah, the 111th verse. Do you hear the similarity in those numbers that are significant to us? The ninth surah, 111th verse, not 11th verse. Allah hath purchased of the unbelievers their persons and their goods. For theirs, in return, is the garden of paradise. I'm sorry, not unbelievers, believers. Allah hath purchased of the believers their persons and their goods. For theirs, in return, is the garden of paradise. They fight in his cause and slay and are slain, a promise binding on him in truth. If they want to go into the garden of God where there are 70, not Virginians, but virgins live, they have to slay and be slain. That is the ninth surah, 111th verse. you think that's a coincidence? The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God, Jesus said in John 16, 2. The Quran says in 929, 9th surah, 29th verse, Fight those who believe not in Allah to the last day, nor those that hold that forbidden which Allah has forbidden, or his messenger has forbidden. Do not acknowledge the religion of the unbeliever, <clears throat> even if they are people of the book, Jews or Christians, until they pay the jiza with willing submission and they themselves are subdued. This means that a Muslim is commanded in his book not to treat you with respect, dignity, and honor, but only allow you to exist in his land if you are in a status called demitude, you have to be his slave. Financially, you have to pay him tribute. And you have to show yourself subdued. This is meant through the years that women who were Christians or Jews should be raped to show themselves subdued. This has meant that your home is no longer your home to show yourself subdued. It's meant that leaders and towns 
under Islamic control have taken their other populations and humiliated them publicly trying to obey their holy book. The last thing I have to share with you on this unpleasant subject comes from the speech of a man named Gert Wilders. I never thought in a million years that somebody from the Netherlands would lead the world's charge in explaining the truth. I never thought that a man that was not behind a pulpit would so accurately describe this climate. But I want you to hear a link between Islam and Israel. And then we're going to move on to teach the truth of Israel. This comes from the middle of a speech that he gave here in the United States. By the way, he's hunted every day for another reason than describing Muhammad accurately. Picking up in the middle. Now you know why Winston Churchill called Islam the most retrograde force in the world and why he compared Mein Kampf to the Koran. Winston Churchill thought that the Koran was no different than Mein Kampf. The public has wholeheartedly accepted the Palestinian narrative and sees Israel as the aggressor. I have lived in Israel and visited it several times as well. I have support for Israel. First, because it is the Jewish homeland after 2,000 years of exile, up to and including Auschwitz. Second, because it is a democracy. And third, because Israel is our first line of defense. This tiny country is situated on the fault line of jihad, frustrating Islam's territorial advance. Israel is facing the front lines of jihad just like Kashmir, Kosovo, the Philippines, Thailand, Darfur, the Sudan, Lebanon, Indonesia, and friends, we could add lots and lots of places to that in the same way that West Berlin was in the way during the Cold War. The war against Israel is not a war against Israel. It is a war against the West. It is jihad. Israel is simply receiving the blows that were meant for all of us. You might capitalize us to say the U.S. If there would have been no Israel, Islamic imperialism would have found other venues to release its energy and its desires for conquest. Thanks to Israeli parents who send their children to the army and lay awake at night, parents in Europe and America can sleep well and dream, unaware of the dangers that are looming. Many in Europe are arguing in favor of abandoning Israel in order to address the grievances of our Muslim minorities. But if Israel were, God forbid, to go down, it would not bring any solace to the West. It would not mean our Muslim minorities would all of a sudden change their behavior and accepted values. On the contrary, the end of Israel would give enormous encouragement to the forces of Islam. They would, and rightly so, deem Israel's demise as the proof that the West is weak and doomed. The end of Israel would not mean the end of our problems with Islam, but would only mark the beginning. It would mean the start of the final battle for world domination. If they can get to Israel, they can get to everything. This is a political leader. This is not a preacher. And what do we hear on our nightly news? And the American pulpits are deaf to it in the same way that from the 1930s on, American pulpits were deaf to the need of the Jewish people. And every day we have a fanatical lunatic in Iran that is promising to destroy Israel. But we're unconcerned as long as our lattes and our gas prices are not too high. Church, when we consider the cultural contribution of Islam, 
It is a religion of death. When we think of what has become known as Judeo-Christian values, they promote life. There will be a day when I teach in depth on Islam. But on September 12th, after watching hours and hours of footage yesterday, as I'm sure many of you did, seeing our countrymen jumping from burning buildings, seeing people die at the hands of homicide bombers, but never once in all of the reporting hearing the truth spoken that this was done not only by evil men, but participants in an evil religion that is founded upon warfare from its very birth. Never did I hear that. Where is the backbone of the church? Why have we lost the ability to say good is good and evil is evil? Instead, we've said everything is relative. Everything depends upon your point of view. On one hand this, on the other hand this, I promised you more one-armed preaching. And I'm trying to give you that. Moving on from death to life, I want you to hear a more spiritual reason, a more profound reason to love and pray for Israel. I want you to consider this heritage that comes to us. Turn with me to Leviticus 16. Saturday is a very special day in Israel. Not only is it a weekly Sabbath, it is a high Sabbath. It is a high Sabbath because the weekly Sabbath happens to fall on the great day of Yom Kippur. Yom means day, Kippur means atonement. I want to remind you, those of you New Testament scholars, and I hope there are a bunch of you out there, that Hebrews 8... The fifth verse reminds us that the things that were created on the ground in Israel, i.e. the tabernacle, its furnishings, later the temple that was built in a prescribed way, were only shadows and copies of something that existed in heaven. You understand what we're saying? When you look at what is on the ground, it is to show us a picture of something that already exists in the heavens. And to the Hebrew mindset, there were multiple heavens. There's the heaven that is our atmosphere, there's the heaven that is the starry realm, and there's the heaven that only God dwells in. So these shadows and copies on the earth reflect the things that are in the heavens. Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moshe after the death of his two sons, the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. I told you it was, death. It was life, not death. So why are we starting here? The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. People that have pointed out that there's lots of death in the Bible have failed to recognize that there is only one way that the Bible produces death. When we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength and fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, the only way that the Bible ever produces death is as a judgment on people who refuse to love each other and refuse to love God. That is entirely different than the message of the Koran. They don't accept your political ideology, kill them. Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10, 1-3, says that they did 
not do their work in the prescribed way. There's even an indication that they may have been drunk, not taking what God wanted to show the whole world seriously. Hear this, saints. This is important about your calling. Nadab and Abihu's calling, their lives were not more important than all the rest of God's work on the planet from then till now. And if they are allowed to go their own way, if they're allowed to do whatever they want, not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, not love their fellow man as themselves, and they are a member of God's household, He might lovingly bring them home rather than ruin it for all of us that have come afterwards. It's another way to think about Uzzah, too. Having said that, He says you cannot go to that place where I dwell. And do you hear that there are chambers? There is a holy place. There is a most holy place, and there is a holy of holies. It is kind of like God is saying there is a airy realm, there is a starry realm, and then there's the place that I alone dwell. In fact, everything that is in the progression that we find in the 16th chapter, in first and second verse, describes something. We start in an altar in Israel. When you want to approach God, the way to God is to receive a sacrifice. This is the way for all mankind. You would not know this if Judaism didn't teach you this. If God had not chosen Israel, you would not know this. But in Israel, there was an altar, and it was in a line between you and God. Before you get to Him, you must go to an altar. This is different than what our churches preach. They preach, if you would like your best life now, go to God. That is not what the pattern is. The pattern is, you must start at an altar. And friends, at an altar, something dies so that something lives. Something dies so that something lives. And in ancient Israel, at this altar, the blood of something innocent, a lamb, would be thrown in your face. The next step would be that you would walk to a bronze laver. Because God never wanted His people to dwell in guilt. He never wanted His people to be outside of His promises, covered in shame and guilt. He wanted them to experience that so that they could know what it was to be washed by Him. So you moved from an altar to a labor. And in the labor, you looked into the bottom and it gave you an accurate picture of your spiritual condition. If your testimony is, I just kind of gently fell into the Lord somewhere, I've always been a pretty good old boy, but now I really love him. You might need to consider this pattern. You move on from that labor into a room that held three things. After having received a sacrifice, after having been washed by the living God, you were now invited into the courts of his presence. And in that court was showbread. Showbread is a King James word that is translating a Hebrew word, ponium. Ponium literally means the bread of face. And you're like, bread of face, what is that? It means when you are in the place where your face and God's face can stare at each other. It's like eating bread. It's nourishment for the soul. And how do you get to that place of nourishment? Starts at an altar, moves to a labor, and that brings you into his presence. What else was in that room? We had incense. This was to teach the whole world that this altar of incense in this place where you were communing face to face with God, this sweet smelling incense 
was your prayer, your constant communication with Him was now possible. You couldn't smell the incense or couldn't see it from miles away. But the closer you got to the face of God, the more you realized that your every speech was going up before His ears. As further description of the room begins to become evident, there is a lampstand in the room. A seven-pronged lampstand called a menorah. It's something that was designed specifically by God to represent His seven spirits. For the first time in your life, you were in a room that had no natural light. It was simply illuminated by God's Spirit. And you could see yourself as God called you to be. His child feeding from His face in constant communion with Him. But there was still a curtain. It was a curtain that indicated there is yet one more place you can go. And it had not been opened. And it's that curtain, that place, and that person that I would like to talk to you about today on the Yom Kippur. I guess before we get to the curtain, it would be appropriate to review the feast again because they also show us the way. Not the way to some eschatological truth, which I love, but the way to the Father. It starts with Pesach, the time in which you receive a lamb that is sacrificed for you. It moves into unleavened bread, a time period like you're washing at a labor. And then you go to first fruits and Shavuot, or first fruits and Pentecost, a time period where you are enjoying fellowship, just like being in that room with the menorah and the showbread and the incense. And then from there comes Rosh Hashanah, which we are in the middle of now, an alertness, an announcement that something is going on in the world. Yom Kippur is coming when God would make His nation, His people right in a single day. And after Yom Kippur comes Sukkot, the party of all parties. We're going to celebrate the time period in which God worked among men because it's now complete and He's housed in us. The feasts teach us the way Israel gave us all of these things. You would not know what they were. Even if you only had a New Testament, you would not know what they were. Israel gave us these because God gave the feast to Israel for the world. Let's read some more in 16. This is how Aaron, this is the third verse, this is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. In other words, there's a prescribed way. And who is Aaron, by the way? Aaron is the high priest. This is a special man entering into a special area where no man could go. You know, I know Star Trek was the uh, go where no man goes, but it started with Israel. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are the sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. For the whole Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now, if you don't have eyes to see, these are meaningless details. But with everything in God, there is a pattern. And the first part of this pattern is a sacrifice must be made for his sin first. The man cannot go into the presence of God without dealing with his sin. 
And then this special anointed person, the one man in all of the world that can go behind this curtain to God's presence after dealing with his sin, he must bathe himself and be adorned with heavenly garments. And once adorned with heavenly garments, he is then able to deal with the sin of his people. Are you beginning to get something there? I don't want to digress far because there are some things I want to teach you about those garments. There is a first century description that survived to us that makes this so clear. But sometimes you can look at something in the natural and it teaches you something spiritual. Amen? Can you ever have you ever seen that? Yes. The sunrise on a beautiful day teaches you something, doesn't it? Psalm nineteen says it's like a groom coming for his bride. What is the creation teaching you? You can learn things from the strangest of areas. I heard a man say he learned theology from his teenager. How's that possible? How does a man learn theology from his teenager? If you're skeptical, I would expect you to be so. But the man said that he looked out, saw his teenager, and realized he had created something in his image that denied his existence. He said he further contemplated the fall of Satan and wondered how that happened. Then he realized, even though the Bible doesn't describe the time or the circumstances, Satan must have been about 15, because that's the age his son first rejected his authority. You can look at some things, and inside you, deep calls out to deep. You suddenly know something. Well, I want you to hear a first century description that I think is a beautiful, beautiful picture. This comes from the letters of Aristeas, A-R-I-S-T-E-A-S. This is a man writing before the fall of the first temple when you could still see the original garments that they made according to the pattern. And listen to his description of seeing the high priest and what he says is like. By the way, if you want any of these sources afterwards, I've gone through great lengths to properly document this stuff. He was girded with a girdle of conspicuous beauty, woven in the most beautiful colors. On his breast he wore the oracle of God, as it is called, on which twelve stones of different kinds were inset, fastened together with gold containing the names of the leaders of the tribes according to their original order, each one flashing forth in an indescribable way in its own particular color. On his head he wore a tiara, as it is called, and upon this, in the middle of his forehead, an immutable turban, the royal diadem full of glory with the name of God inscribed in sacred letters on a plate of gold. Having been judged worthy to wear these emblems in the ministrations, their appearance created such awe and confusion of mind as to make one feel that he had come into the presence of a man who belonged to a different world. I want you to hear this. A man watching Aaron, a man watching high priest after Aaron, dressed in these garments, going in to meet with God. To this observer, looked like somebody that had come from the heavens and not from the earth. What kind of picture is the Hebrew mind trying to paint for you here of a special man who first had to be deemed without sin so that he could go into God's presence and take care of your sin? A union 
between something that came from the heavens and something that came from the dirt. What is this trying to teach us? You find no such beauty in this book. It's not there. These twelve stones. What an interesting thing. I want to read you what Josephus, he's nearly a contemporary of Jesus, says about them. He also appointed the breastplate to be placed in the middle of the ephod to resemble earth, for that has the very middle place of this creation. Josephus said the earth was the middle of the creation. And the girdle which encompassed the high priest round signified the ocean. When he looked at the high priest, he saw somebody who, like the earth, was the center of God's creation. Was Jesus the center of God's creation? For that goes round about and includes the universe. Each of the sardonyxes declares to us the sun and the moon. Those, I mean, that were in nature of the buttons on the high priest's shoulders. And for the twelve stones, well, they should either be understood as the months, or like the entire Greek world understands them and calls them the zodiac. Wow. Eric, are you preaching astrology? I want you to get this picture. We have a special man whose appearance is now heavenly and not earthly. His sin has been dealt with in a unique way so that he is here for the purpose of dealing with your sin. Well, when you think about God and you knew that you couldn't see him in the sky and you knew that you couldn't see him in the starry realm and you supposed that there was a heaven beyond those two heavens called the third heaven, then you presumed that God liked to be surrounded by the twelve constellations. And maybe even he designed his dwelling on earth to mirror his dwelling in heaven, like Hebrews said, a shadow and a copy. So he named twelve tribes to surround himself with. And he shows up in their midst in the form of a special man that is part heaven and part earth who has dealt with his sin and is here to deal with yours. What picture is Israel painting for the world? They painted a picture of a God who wants to dwell with mankind. A God who wants mankind to be right in his presence and not just subjugated. A God who is willing to span the heavens to meet with you today. Not a God that says, if you don't agree with me, I'll smite your neck off. A God who would span the expanses of the universes to meet with you. In our day, we have holograms. We have 3D movies. It's hard to shock the senses. But God in this time, somewhere close to 1600 B.C., designed something that incorporated your eyes your nose, your ears. Josephus talks about the bells speaking a melody that sounded as if angels were singing as he walked. It incorporated every possible avenue to reach your heart, to reach your mind, to reach your spirit that says, I want to meet with you. I'm designing something on earth that is like my heavenly abode. Maybe this is why Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come on earth, Thy will be done as it is in heaven. 
a God surrounded by 12 groupings in the heavens now has 12 groupings on the earth. It sounds like he is setting up his home with us. When we pick up in 3 through 5, we read 3 through 5. There's one more thing that I didn't mention. The heavenly man shows up with a special offering. Take two male goats for a sin offering. Two male goats for a sin offering. It's one sin offering to be given, but it is comprised of two goats. You got that? Two goats, one offering. Pick up with me in six. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering, to make atonement. This word make atonement is a verb, it's called kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R. Kafar means to cover, to forgive, to expiate, to reconcile, to purge, to cancel, to placate, or my favorite, to ransom. It is one word that has all of those meanings. Our God desired to cover you, to forgive you, to expiate sin, to reconcile you, to purge you, to cancel anything that stood against you, to placate any debt that stood against you, to ransom you from this world. Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Right where all Israel could stand. All Israel could see a meeting is taking place between a God and a man. He is to cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Two goats that would comprise one sin offering, but they each had very different purposes that no one goat could carry out. It's almost as if there had to be two natures present. what happens with our goats one's blood is going to be poured out the other is going to live only to carry your sins away two goats one offering two purposes one heavenly man the name for this goat is an amazing name it's full of lore and myth especially in the Jewish world Azazel. Now, when I say that, it probably sounds nothing like the Hebrew who said it, but an Az, an Az, is a goat. An Azel, A-Z-A-L, means take away. So the Azazel is the goat who takes away sin. One would give us life, the other would carry sin away. Read me from the 20th verse. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. One goat would come forward, and God's representative 
would place upon him all the sins of Israel. And where would it be? On his head. There's something that they did that would signify this. They would take a cord and they would dip it in the ink of a tola worm. T-O-L-A. Tola. This is because in the ancient world, this was the closest thing that we had to Sharpie marker ink. It was an indelible ink, one that could not be gotten out of clothes, one that could not be taken off of something. It was so permeable into things that once it was there, it never left. And they would dip a cord into the indelible crimson ink of the polar worm, a scarlet kind of color. And they would wrap that around the top of the goat's head to mark the Azazel, the goat who's taking the sand away. So you could see him because he seemed to have a crown of sin. He shall bathe himself with water. Oh, I skipped some, I'm sorry. Goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of the man appointed for the task. What an amazing thing. In Israel, nobody wanted to be associated with this goat that had to take away sin. I mean, Aaron was going to put his hands on him. He was going to leave a crimson stain across his brow. But then somebody had to make sure this goat went out and never came back. So they had to appoint somebody to do it. Jewish history says they appointed Gentiles to do it. You know, for the right price, a Gentile would do anything. <laughs> so it was a Gentile who would lead the goat outside the city. Come on now. Are you able to connect these dots? The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. And the man shall release it in the desert. You know, he is supposed to release it, but the problem is the Gentile really didn't usually have a reverence for God. And the Jews knew what this said, but they didn't want to be associated with it. Well, if you were a Gentile paid to carry that goat out into the desert, what might happen if it wandered back into camp? They might take your money from you. So since you're a Gentile who doesn't care about God, when you lead that goat out into the desert, nobody's around, you shoot him. That assures that you get to keep what's yours. People who didn't reverence God and Jews who didn't really care about what God wanted led one outside the city. Supposed to be let go and bear the sins of the world. But instead he was killed for them, making him two goats in one. Isn't that an amazing story? You don't get that from Islam. Something's put on his head and a man that is appointed for the task leads him outside the city. He's carrying sin to a solitary place. Turn with me to Isaiah 1. Some of you have no interest in these kind of documents, but by the way, everything that I've quoted, I, I brought to you references. Yeah. This one that I'm holding up here doesn't look much like an ancient scroll. That's because I printed it off the internet and it is a copy of an ancient scroll. Fair enough? Is it not written? This is a Babylonian Talmud tractate called the Shabbat. And in an area called Folio 86A, it tells an interesting story. Yeah, I know you got all that right. Wrote it down. You're going home to study it. 
Look at the 18th verse of Isaiah, and then I will tell you what the story says. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, the indelible ink of the total worm, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. To us, this is no big deal because we've got bleach. We've got OxyClean. We've got DD7. We've got things, and we've seen this miracle before. But in the ancient world, there was nothing that would get this ink out of the wool. So they hung the cord after they make the mark on the goat's head on the temple door. And if the cord turned white, the Babylonian Talmud says the people knew that God had accepted their sacrifice and their sins had been covered, expiated, ransomed, removed. And Isaiah seemed to be referring to that practice. Wow, what an amazing thing, huh? A miracle would occur, and that which was irreversibly stained could suddenly be pure again on the day of Yom Kippur. I do want to take you into the New Testament with these things, but I got to tell you before we get there, before you neatly wrap this up in a type of Christ, before you glory in Christian Christian theology, I need you to consider something. If these things had not been done, if there was no Passover, if there were none of the other six other feasts, if there was no people of Israel surrounding the tabernacle of God that was revealed to them from heaven to build, if there was no high priest, if there were none of those things, would the world at all understand Jesus' purpose? No. Let me ask you another question. If every year you went through this cycle of feast and just like you can look at the sunrise and know it means something deeper and you were craving for your creator and you wanted him how excited would you be when you heard the trumpets of Rosh Hashanah and you knew that mere days away on Yom Kippur every ugly thing that you had ever done in your life would be washed away You might walk outside every day and stare at the temple and see if the cord had turned white. A kind of spiritual barometer for yourself. You've heard that Israel and Judaism is a religion of law. But the New Testament, the New Testament is is a religion of grace. This is complete and total ignorance. There is nothing in the New Testament that is not firmly rooted in the Old Testament. God does not change like a shifting shadow. Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to put it on better footing. He came to typify all of those things in one human being. For that reason, in first and in John, in the very first chapter, it seems to go out of his way to include something. It's the twenty ninth verse. Behold, the Lamb of God come to... Come on, only Cassidy knows that. Behold, the Lamb of God come to... By the way, the Day of Atonement could be done with a goat or a lamb. The word's exactly the same thing before a certain age. Behold, the Lamb come to take away the sins of the world. In John eleven fifty. A man who was a high priest, then Caiaphas, 
said, you guys are stupid and you don't know anything. Better that one man die for the people than that we all suffer. Turn with me to John 18. That's where our story is going to pick back up. Adam, you having trouble getting there? In John 18, look at the 12th verse. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. It's almost like God's story is playing out without the people even realizing that they're playing the parts. Because now we have a man standing, a sin offering, standing before God's high priest. You said, but he was wicked. He's a bad man. Still God's high priest. He's standing before the very man who had said it would be good for one man to die for the people and has no idea what is about to happen. Turn with me to John 19. We need a Gentile, somebody to take the sin offering outside the camp. 19.1 Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Said, well, Pilate is a Gentile, but he didn't take him outside the camp. Well, he ordered him to be taken outside the camp, didn't he? The Romans, in order to show dominance over the Jews, did something in the first century. They took their temple and they built a fortress on the side of it that they called Diana. We hear God among the Romans. It's funny how those Roman deities are always trying to outshine Jesus. And in the fortress of Diana, they took the high priest's garments and they kept them there. As if to tell the Jews, we control your access to your God. Isn't that an interesting comment on a Roman spirit? So Pilate is the Gentile who takes Jesus outside the camp, but he is also the man who holds the high priest's garment. They had a little discussion about kingdom, didn't they? Are you a king? It is as you say. He might should have asked him, are you a high priest? Because although in appearance he looked like a regular man, he had descended from heaven and was a union of the heaven and the earth. Like someone with two natures. Like two offerings wrapped up in one somebody who is here to deliver a message to God's people I desire to dwell with you I desire to bring you life and if the problem is that I'm in the stars then I will make you shine like stars if the problem is is there's 12 groupings I'll put you in 12 groupings I will design your world in the way that my abode is I will bring heaven to earth because I love you that's not good Nothing like that can be found with Muhammad and his rancid teachings. 
instead what you find is lust and death and violence. I can even read to you all of the things that teach Muslims if it is good for Islam, it's okay to do, even if it means lying. And teach you the way that Islam defines peace or divides the world. And teach you any of those things, but it's once you have tasted the truth and the real thing, anything that is not it is offensive to your spirit. And you are not scared to draw a line in the sand that says, I stand with the righteous. We draw a cartoon character of Jesus being abused in any possible way. And our National Endowment of the Arts at one time in the 90s paid paid for a sculpture of Jesus submerged in a jar of human urine. Another of a biblical scene made from cow dung. Our country paid for those things through your tax dollars and we have called it art. But some cartoonist who draws a picture of Muhammad and the world will condemn him because we don't want to make the Muslims mad. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we've never read these are those that came out of the great tribulation <coughs> who were beheaded because of their <coughs> testimony. Somewhere along the line we forgot that God wanting to meet with us may mean that the enemies in this world don't like us very much. Eric, are you calling Muslims enemies? No, no, no. We're going to finish this teaching. What I'm trying to tell you is they need to get the message. Allah is not God. Muhammad is not the messenger. There is a God who wants to meet with you who will teach you to make peace, not war. There is a God who will meet with you who will teach you to take on his characteristics and he is not a warlord. In short, we need to learn to bring them to our Lord before they bring us to their sword. With super mosques being planned in almost every city and 25% of Europe being projected to be Muslim in the next decade. This fight is coming to our shores, I promise. Oh, you just got riled up because it was September 11th yesterday. Now, I'm really more riled up because it's September 12th today and it feels like any other day. I'm really more riled up because a decade hasn't passed yet. And we don't really remember or care. I'm more riled up not because I'm a patriot, but because I'm a lover of God and these people are of an antichrist spirit. I'm really more riled up because if Christians don't grow a spine and present the truth, then lots of people are going to die. We'll stand and proclaim our Lord. We will stand in a loving but uncompromising truth. I believe that their turning may be the very thing that Paul said, I make much of my ministry among you Gentiles that I might win some of my people by way of jealousy. Let Hamas bow a knee to a Jewish king and proclaim their love to him. Let them lay down their arms and go to help Israel and you tell me it wouldn't start a fire in Israel. 
thought all of our lives that we were the Gentile Christians who would make the Jews envious. It hadn't happened in the last several hundred years. They hate us. Why did they hate us? Because we persecuted them in every century and every country that we call Christian. Maybe we could do our part by winning some of the Amalekites, warlike valley dwellers, over. Teach them to change completely in nature. Even our term Judeo-Christian implies that we already are operating from a similar base. But trust me, every Jew who has served his years in the military knows that no Islamofascist, no Islamic settler that is there to colonize their land is operating from a similar base. And so if there's a change in their nature, how could a Jew not notice it? The son of a Hamas leader was recently on trial in the United States. Do you know who came to his defense? Israeli Mossad. You know why? A man saw a vision of Jesus and began honoring the Jews. And he turned and spied on Hamas for Israel. And even the Israeli Secret Service took note of it. Isn't that worth thinking about? I'd like to turn your attention to John 19, verse 14. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. In other words, it's Passover day, and Passover week is the week of Passover and unleavened bread. It's almost like John wants you to understand the exact timing of all of these events, as if the feast schedule, as if the tabernacle description, as if all of those things had fallen in one place at one time, saying, now is the hour of salvation you've heard about all of your lives. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away. If these people are speaking Hebrew, he says, Here is your king. In Hebrew, that'd be Malek. Pilate didn't speak Hebrew, he spoke Greek and Latin. But the Jewish people would have responded, Azazel. Take him away. Even in the nation's defiance of Jesus as their king, they were proclaiming him their sacrifice that would carry away sin. And yet it was missed. And you said, how could a people be so dull? How could they just not get it? Well, I turn and ask you, American Christian, how could we be so stupid not to be a hundred years away from the Holocaust and we are watching the times repeat themselves. The church sat on its hands and the whole Jewish world noticed and we sit on our hands still to this day. Everywhere I was in Israel, they presented dates as common era and before common era. You got me? B.C.E. and C.E. Except one place. I read a placard Holocaust Museum that said in the year 1930 whatever of the Christian era Christian era the world stood by while six million Jews were systematically put to death friends we need to be able to see the difference between Yom Kippur and Islam 
We need to be able to feel the difference in the spirits. We need to be able to stand even if it means your life. Zechariah 12.10 is not one we want to turn to. But you do want to write it down and go home and read it. Zechariah 12.10 teaches something. They. They. We have a pronoun, you have to have an antecedent. That's something that's lost in some of our grammar these days. Sometimes I'm speaking with you and I'm sure you're speaking with me. And you say he and she and they and we. And, and I have no idea who you're talking about. Because you never gave me an antecedent for the pronoun. Let me give you the antecedent for the pronoun. They is Israel. Will look upon the one they pierced. They will mourn like one weeping for an only son. Goes into clan by clan, tribe by tribe. And you can't read the twelfth chapter without reading thirteenth because it's one letter. And thirteen one says, And I will open a fountain in Jacob that will cleanse them from all of their iniquity. Why must we stand with Israel, saints? Because Israel's destiny is our destiny. You're supposed to be a grafted-in Gentile into Israel. You cannot claim their spiritual blessings and not share their natural fate. In fact, the Word teaches us, and preachers have twisted it to our own peril, that if we have shared in the spiritual blessing, we owe something of a natural blessing. And preachers have made that all about me. Send me your money. Send me your money and I'll send you back seven times. Or God will. Or some magician will. Or some ridiculous investment scheme will. Whatever I can do to extort you. This is what preachers have done. Read the scripture in its context. If we have shared in Israel's spiritual blessing. We owe them our natural blessing. This is what the book of Romans teaches the most misunderstood chapter in the book of Romans is the 11th chapter. It teaches our relationship. They support us. We do not support them. The man in the letter I read to you described them as a tiny little country on the forefront of the war. Well, from a certain perspective, the roots of an oak tree may seem tiny, but it is essential to life. Saints, we better wake up. Be working and praying for anyone's salvation other than your own. The day of Yom Kippur was a wonderful day for a lot of reasons. Maybe the most important reason would be this. If you can imagine that we have a goat here and we're going to put on its head all of your sin. That means what you did last week. What you mean means what you did last month. It means that hurt that you have in your heart that you cannot even think about certain people without getting angry. We're going to put all of that on this goat's head. You've been contemplating for 10 days during Rosh Hashanah. For the previous 30 days before that, encompassing a total period of 40 days, you have been asking God to give you the chance to repent. And now 10 days of Rosh Hashanah, you are looking for what in your life must change. And on this day, whatever you discovered in your 40 days of introspection is going to go on that goat's head. How happy would you see, be to see that goat leave the building? I mean, you might post a lookout and say, Hallelujah, the goat is gone! 
You wouldn't walk away from that service going, oh, I'm just an old sinner. See, Israel's got a lot left to teach us saints. A lot left to teach us. We cannot let some satanic force stomp them out. We can't. I have much, much more to teach on Yom Kippur, but it's midday. And if there's an hour that's growing even later, it's one that's getting even darker. And if the people of God don't shine brightly, where will the witness of God in the earth be? I've been asking you to repent for a month. I have been searching my heart for a month. We're learning to build community. We're learning to share each other's needs, to bear one another's burdens. We are learning to bond together. That's all like a drafting process. But the field of play is what we do in the world now that we form the team. You understand? I want this to be a day of Yom Kippur for you. The reason I gave it to you six days early so that by Saturday it might mean something to you. Let the goat leave the building. Be glad he's gone. The Babylonian Talmud contains one last thing you need to know. Every year that court turned from crimson red to white. But 40 years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, can you do that math? The temple's siege to be destroyed in 70, 70 A.D. What's 40 years before 70 A.D.? 30 A.D. In 30 A.D., I don't know why, but the cords stopped changing to white. It's almost as if God was saying, I need you to drop the pattern and pick up the reality. And he has been saying it for 2,000 years. But let me ask you a question. Have you done as good a job proclaiming the truth as the nation did for you to get the truth? Do your holidays, do your lifestyles, do your diets, do your dress? Does everything about your life say, I'm a distinct and peculiar people for God that you can learn from? Or can you not be discerned from the rest of the world? See, you know what the difference was on Yom Kippur? There's only one righteous people in the world on that day. The one who did it God's way. That kind of distinction between light and darkness will make darkness jealous or run. It'll turn darkness into light or darkness will run. This is your call. You've not replaced Israel. You've joined in their calling. And just as they served you, you now serve them. And together we'll be made righteous before the Lord. But definitely not independently. Definitely not separately. There's one body of the Messiah. And the head is a Jewish king. So don't you believe for a minute he's going to leave half of his Jewish body in hell. Stand to your feet. Let's pray. Islam's legacy upon this planet one day when its history is told with honesty will be death. Israel's legacy upon this planet when its Israel is told, when its history is told, will be that God chose a friend, 
named Abraham. And from that friend, he blessed the entire world because God chooses to dwell with his people. And if you are willing, he will make you righteous. If you are unwilling, you stand condemned already. Dear God, let us be among those who are willing. Mighty God, Lord, we lift up this congregation before you. Lord, we ask that you would birth in our hearts and clarify in our minds Israel's role among the nations and maybe most importantly, our role in this nation. Lord, we want your desires. We want your end game. We want to play the part that you have designed for us. We want to function within your kingdom. One is a thumb, another is a pinky. One is an eye and another is an ear. But we want to play the roles that you've called us to play. Lord, don't let us drink the wine of apathy until the hour grows so dark that our brothers have lost their lives. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.